It's so good to be able to give a word from the Lord uh, to you today. I have been impressed upon by the Lord to give this particular word. Uh, there are times when you just know in a more emphatic way that the Lord speaks to you and says, let him know this, let him know this. Uh, we are in Romans 8, beginning with verse 18. I'm going to go ahead and read that for the sake of context, down through verse 26 this morning. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager, eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage of corruption or to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Uh, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in patience. Um, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Lord, take these, um, particularly these last few verses, and uh, make them fresh for us. Amen. Amen. This morning I'm going to give you another story from Arthur, Arthur Gordon. I've used him several times, and I'm going to give it to you again, give you a story from him again. Uh, Gordon writes this. He says, One raw, cold day last winter, I found myself having lunch at the seaside cottage of some friends, an attractive young couple in their 20s. The only other guest was a retired college professor, a marvelous old gentleman, still straight as a lance after seven decades of living. Uh, we had planned a walk on the beach after lunch, but as the gust of winds shook the house and occasional pellets of sleet hissed against the windows, our host's enthusiasm dwindled visibly. Sorry, said the wife, but nobody's going to get me out of this house in that kind of weather. That's right, her husband said. Uh, why risk pneumonia when we can sit by the fire and let the world go by watching television? Ever felt that way when the weather's really bad? Just like, hey, why get out in it? Well, we left them. We left them. Finally preparing to do just that, to leave, like leave the area. But when we came to our cars parked some distance away, I was astonished to see the professor open the trunk of his ancient Sudan and take out an axe. Lots of lovely driftwood out there, he said, gesturing toward the windswept beach. Think I'll get out there and load up my fireplace. I just stared at him. Uh, you're going out there to chop wood? And this sort of afternoon? He gave me a quizzical look. Well, why not? 
Uh, it's better than practicing the deadly art of non-living, isn't it? And the axe was also slant, that slanted axe. He put it across his shoulder, and he set off for the dunes. I watched him go with a, with a sudden old feeling or odd feeling of that, that something was wrong here, something curiously I- I- inverted in the, in the proper order of things. Uh, two youngsters, yes, in their 20s, but youngsters, uh, were content to sit play, uh, placidly by a fire, and here's this old man striding off jauntily into an icy wind, and I myself was left with, with, with a choice. What am I going to do? And I didn't have much time to make that choice. Oh, wait, I heard myself calling out to him. Oh, wait, I'm, I'm coming. I'm, I'm following you. I'm going to go out with you. Now, that's a small episode, uh, Gordon says. It's a small episode, to be sure. We chopped some armfuls of wood. We loaded them into his car. We got a bit wet, but not cold. There was a kind of exhilaration about it all, and the axe blade bite, with the axe blade biting into the weathered timbers, the chips flying, the sea snarling in the background, and a kind of unspoken, unexpected intimacy, too. But re- what really struck in my mind was the phrase about the deadly art of non-living. Because I think the old professor put his finger on the one, of the mo- one of the most malicious or insidious maladies of our time. The tendency in most of us to observe rather than to act. Uh, to avoid rather than to participate. Not do rather than do. A tendency to give in to the sly, negative, cautionary voices that constantly counsel us to be careful, to be controlled, to be wary and prudent, hesitant and guarded in our approach to this complicated thing we call living. The deadly art of non-living. It's ironic, don't you think? I think it's very ironic that the world looks at the church as the place of non-living. The church, or the church doesn't think of itself that way, but the world thinks of us like that. So much of the world thinks of us that way, that that's the place where people go and they do these mundane, boring, religious activities. For what? I've got too much to do with my life. I'd rather get out there and do stuff as they flip the clicker on the TV. Right? Isn't that the truth? It's ironic that the world sees the church as the place of non-living. Yet the church, the church is a place of action because Jesus is the man of action. This morning, I have a, cl- I have a class. Uh, now, I've started my new class, which is really an old class in Matthew's Gospel. We spent a couple of years going through this gospel, and now we're, we've just entered into chapter 21. Uh, and and it's, it's interesting that the things I was about to teach uh, this morning, because we didn't get to this verse, verse 9 that we see up, you see up on the screen, but uh, it's interesting that I was teaching on the same material, or at least close to it this morning, that I want to share with you, uh, that Jesus is the man of action. Uh, there's a couple of things that Jesus did uh, right before he was crucified, several days before he was crucified, that, that I know of nothing better than these two things I'm going to talk about that he did that actually show that he was a man of action, a bold person. Uh, you will remember 
that Jesus, right before his pass, or right before Passover, came into Jerusalem. He comes through the Mount of Olives, and he is riding on a colt. This is what Matthew twenty-one uh, tells us: as Jesus is coming down into into Jerusalem, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, "Hosanna to the Son of David!" So they recognized that Jesus was the Son of David. He was a type of king, a king in the name of, in, in the line of David. Hosanna to the Son of David. Uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Uh, Matthew tells us that the whole city was, was, uh, uh, was involved here. The whole city was stirred up. Uh, when Jesus arrived on the scene, uh, the people were just kind of going, going crazy. You couldn't, this can't be. The son of David, the, this, this, this great person in the, uh, who's a king is coming. And then when they ask the question, who is he? What are, they, what, is, what, are they, what are they told? They're told that the prophet, this is a prophet Jesus from Nazareth. So they're told that he's a king and he's a prophet. We as Christians understand that he's more than a king and a prophet. Uh, but the fact is, is that Jesus, when he comes into Jerusalem, is, is he's performing the most daring of acts. Because he's riding on a colt, and we know that that was an action that, well, uh, was anything but non-living. Uh, Jesus was living the art of living, not living the art of, or uh, the deadly art of non-living, because he's taking this incredibly bold action, because people knew that with this, when Jesus arrived at Jerusalem, and he was riding a colt to, into Jerusalem, that he was communicating that he was a type of king that came, that came to replace everything that we think. That this was going to be a new, a new world, that the Messiah had arrived, that those who were in power uh, were going to be turned upside down. And of course, the religious authorities were very upset. By the end of the week, he's going to be crucified. However, there's another act even more daring than him riding the colt into Jerusalem. And this, and this act is described in our next verse I have on the screen. Uh, it's immediately following his, this, the, this act of coming in Jerusalem. Look what he does. Verse 12, Matthew 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who said or who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Uh, let me suggest to you that this is the primary act that gets Jesus killed by the end of the week. He comes into Jerusalem. He's already announced by writing on a cult that it's a fulfillment of prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. And he's actually showing the people the kind of king he is. And then when he comes in, he does anything but bring peace. He brings in an act that is absolutely daring. He goes in and he turns over the tables of the money changers. And I got to tell you, if you're ever going to get people upset in any kind of institution, any kind of, any kind of organization, go after their money. Right? If I, as a preacher right here, if I want to get you upset personally, all I have to do is really go after your pocketbook. Really go after you. And some people here, of course, most of you are going to say, well, this is good because of the fact that the preacher's actually preaching on money. So this is a good thing, right? 
But some of you are going to say, I don't want to give anything to this church. It's my money, and you know, I'm going to hold on to it, right? Anytime you really want get, to get, get at people, talk about their money, right? Well, Jesus comes in to Jerusalem, and the first thing that he does, after already getting the, the religious authorities upset because he's riding in on this donkey's colt, Oh, he, the first thing he does is he goes in. He, he goes in. He shakes up the whole system, right? You're talking about the center of, of religious life for the Jews. You're talking about the center of of social and economic and religious life. That is really going to get people upset. It's an unbelievably daring act. You know why? Because Jesus is a man of action. The world looks at the church and say the church is a place of inaction, but we follow our Lord, who is a great man of action. And what does he say? What does he say when he turns over all the tables and so forth? What does he say? He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Let me suggest to you that Jesus is speaking to you and me today. Telling us that that is the act that he's calling us to. So many times people think, well, prayer, you know, it's, it's inactive. No, prayer's not inactive. Prayer is active. It's daring. It takes boldness to end this service with people praying up here. Does it not take boldness to come and pray at the altar rail? Oh, no they might see that I'm a human being, that I actually have problems, that I have issues. Oh, no, don't let the people know that I'm one of them, right? Isn't that sort of the way we think? We're afraid to come up to the altar rail. So many of us are. shouldn't be that way. This is a place of action, not inaction, right? When we meet on Wednesday nights and we come together and pray, we're acting. We're doing something that God's called us to do. We're entering the call. Um, my house shall be called the house, house of prayer. You know, I, you know what I really wonder about as your pastor? I'm wondering if you want to live. Do you want to live? Or, or do you want to practice the deadly art of non-living? Maybe that's you. You say, I'd rather go ahead and not live. I'd just rather go ahead and just kind of be inactive kind of stay out of the way, not let people know that, you know, that I'm here, not let people know that I actually have issues, I don't want to share my life. I mean, I just want to go to just, just stay inactive. I, I want to practice the deadly art of non-living. Is that you? That might be you. Sometimes when I'm, I'm, I'm in here and I'm, I'm, we're in music and we're at different times in worship and you know, I'm far from a perfect pastor and far from a perfect preacher. I understand all those things. I'm just a human being. And I do not bring a critical mindset to this church because this is a great church. <laughs> this is a great church and a loving church. But there are times when I wonder whether or not we are practicing the deadly art of non-living. Whether or not we really love Jesus to the point where our lives, are over, well, we're truly alive. Jesus says, my house should be called the house of prayer. Do you want to live? I don't know. I don't know. Jesus is a man of action. He demands us. He doesn't just expect us. He demands us to be people of prayer.
well, in our passage today in Romans 8, uh, on the surface we could easily misunderstand, particularly when we get into verses 24 and 25, we could easily misunderstand Paul. Even though, even though uh, we are in Romans chapter 8, and it's one of the greatest passages of all time, how easy it would be for the church to believe that we are to live in the world of non-living, to be inactive, to be devoid of risk, adventure avoidant, satisfied with next to nothing. Uh, I, I, this is what people say. This is what people say. Even in line of Romans 8, they say, well, you know, I'm a Christian now. You know, I, I received Jesus as my Savior because someone shared the gospel with me, and I, I am a Christian now. I consider myself to be one, and, and uh, I, I know there's some things that God expects of me, and I'm going to fulfill that. God expects me to come to church uh, at least every now and then, every once in a while, I, uh, uh, to sit in, sit in my pew, to participate at least a little bit, uh, maybe just, just a little bit, to give a little money, not too much because I have my own financial issues, and to give a little of my time in life to him, but, but not take too much risk, not to see the Christian life as too much of an adventure. I don't want to take action. The reason why I say this, that so many of us think this way, is because of what Paul has to say in this passage in Romans 8. We'll take a look at this, Romans 8 here. He says, For in this hope we were saved. Now, of course, he's talking about all of creation, right? We, we went through this. We talked about nature being lifted up last week. And we being part of this, all the salvation narrative that God is bringing to us. Uh, Paul says, For in this hope... That God is doing going to, and going to do something incredible, incredibly glorious in our lives. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so it's very easy to read this and say, well, you know, God has called us to wait. And so waiting means that we don't really do much. Um, the word in the Greek for wait, sapodekamai, it means to continue to remain in a state until an expected event, to remain until, to wait until. Um, okay, we can wait. And so often we think of waiting like this. I think I, Immediately I think of two things. One is when I go to the, see the doctor. Now, I came from a medical family, so I don't want to be too critical of the, of the doctors because, I mean, I came from a medical family. My dad's a doctor, right? My, brother is a, my brother's a doctor, so. But I still think of it this way a little bit. I go in to see my doctor, and, you know, I sign in or whatever. I let him know I'm here. And then I sit down. And I'm still sitting. <laughs> And minutes go by, and I'm still sitting. I've been, in, I've waited for a doctor for a well over an hour before. And I'm sure they're doing their, their work. They're busy, and they're good people, and they're doing the right thing. I'm sure of that. But still, there's a sense of like, here's what waiting is. Waiting is sitting in a doctor's office. Now, here's another point, uh, another place where I like, to, where I end up finding my, myself waiting. Sometimes uh, I go to the post office, not our post office, because our po post office is blessed. It's blessed. There are some actually nice people who work down there. 
but I, sometimes, but go with me this on this one. You go to the post office, and there is a line. You remember when we had a flood in Kalama? Do you remember that the big flood in Kalama, and we had to go to Longview to get our mail? In the first several weeks of going to Longview to get your mail, I'm telling you, you had to wait. <laughs> that was waiting. See, and so we tend to think of waiting as just kind of not doing anything, right? I mean, that's just that's that's what we think of waiting, okay? But this is not the kind of waiting that that Paul wants us to think about when we're waiting for this new reality to break in. It's not the kind of waiting we're talking about, okay? Uh, I was going to talk a little bit about patience, uh, but that that's okay. We're, we're gonna we're, we'll move move ahead. I think we need to move ahead. Um, the point I'm trying to make is that. Waiting is always active. Now, that doesn't seem to make sense to us at first, but waiting is always active. And the best place that I can, that I can go to, that I have always on the slide, waiting is always active. The best place I can go to to help us understand this today is Habakkuk. Now, uh, uh, what, about three or four years ago, I preached on Habakkuk. I preached 12 sermons on Habakkuk. Uh, so I'm not going to be doing that again um, in this church anyway. Um, but I, I think it's really a helpful text for us to understand what the biblical view of waiting is. So Habakkuk. Um, Habakkuk had an issue. Things were falling apart. This is, uh, this is not too many years before the exile of the, of the, of the uh, southern kingdom. And so Habakkuk, Habakkuk sees all these problems in the society. So in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1, he says, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you violence. And you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? So here's, here's this, this faithful man of God. Who looks, at, looks, looks, looks around and says there's all this sin around me. And God's not doing anything about it. I think we've been there before. Some of us have seen people who are you know, doing the wrong thing. And nothing's happening. Maybe we've, maybe we've been violated ourselves in various ways. Maybe someone's broken to our home. Maybe someone has violated our bodies, or violated us personally. And we say, look, all this stuff's happened. Why aren't you doing something about it? And this is, this is Habakkuk's problem, but he's seeing it more on a societal level. Okay. So jumping down to verse 13, that same chapter, this is the essential problem in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk says this. It says, you who are pure eye have pure eyes than to see evil. So he's saying God is holy. So holy, he says, look, you cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So he's got this real issue with God right now. It's moved into this time where he's like going, God, you got to get going. Come on, do this stuff. You see, you're holy and there's unholiness in your people. Let's get going. So this is an essential problem in the book. Right? So then we get to Habakkuk 2. And this is where we're, get, we're getting into the waiting part, what I wanted to talk about this morning. Try to show you that waiting is active. It's not inactive, it's active. It's not non-living, it's living. I will take my stand at my watch post. In other words, he's going to wait and see what God's going to do, right? And station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me 
and what I will answer concerning my complaint. The complaint we were just talking about in verse 13 in chapter 1. That God is holy and he's surrounded all these people in the society, all these unholy people who are acting against the uh, essentially the helpless. And the Lord answered me. The Lord answered me. Write the vision. So God's responding. And the vision is going to be talked about uh, further in chapter 2. We're not going to get into that specifically what the vision is. But he says, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. So there's this waiting that's going on for the vision to be fulfilled. It hastens to the end. In other words, it's going. It's the idea. It's going. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. Wait for the vision to be fulfilled, which is coming in chap- the, the, the later part, latter part of chapter 2, which we won't talk about this morning. But wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it, Habakkuk. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now, what I want you to see is that in this waiting, how is this, how is this really described? It says, write the vision. Verse 2, write the vision, make it plain on tablets. Why? Because the person who reads it, who takes it in, will do what? He will run, who reads it. In other words, he will be active person. It takes strength to be able to read it and wait for it. It takes strength, and guess what? The person who does this gets to run because waiting is always super, super active. Isn't that right? It's super active. Exactly. Just like listening to the sermon is an act, active activity, right? Okay. All right. Exactly. All right. So, um, question is, really, what does this mean for us today? To be people who wait. All right. Well, I'll tell you what it means. It means my house shall be called a house of prayer. You know, you know when you read Romans 8 and Paul talks about this hope and the fulfillment of this hope, we wait for it with patience. You know what the next subject is that he talks about immediately following? It's prayer. It's prayer. Let me ask you something. Are you actively waiting on God in your life? That's another way of asking, are you people of prayer? Are you a person of prayer? Now, we all need help in our prayer life. Uh, Praying is not easy, but let me ask you this. Are you willing to trust this congregation enough to pray with them? See, I think that it's really true. I, I think there's... I think that a big number, of, a large number of us don't trust the congregation enough to pray with them. I'm okay praying in my home with the door shut. And that's good. There's a place for that, right? We need to be people who pray personally. But let me ask you something. How's the world going to know that we mean the business if we never pray together? I mean, I can be up here and talk all day long about various passages of the Bible. I've got all kinds of things I can say. I, I'm very comfortable teaching. I love to teach. 
It's one of my gifts. I can break down some of the Greek passages and all this stuff, and we can talk about this stuff. It's great. I love it. I can do it all day long. The work of the church is prayer. The waiting of the church is prayer. Let me ask you, do you trust each other enough to pray together? That's the real question. Because I know what goes on. I know why these altar rails are not filled up every week. Most weeks, very few weeks, do we have the altar rails filled up. And very few Wednesdays do I see the Wednesday night prayer meeting actually filled up with people. I don't see it. It's because you're afraid. It's because you're afraid. You think, what if Jesus was afraid? What if Jesus, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I want to ride that colt down into Jerusalem. That's, ooh, I might, I might cause trouble. Ooh, 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 ooh. Father, are you, you're telling me to go in there and turn over the, 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 the tables or the money changers? They might, they might kill me. This, they might kill me for doing that. Yes, that's why you're here. What if Jesus was a man of inaction? What if he mastered the art, the deadly art of non-living? What if he did that? You and I wouldn't be saved, would we? You see, here's the thing, and I'm not going to ever stop doing this as long as I'm at this church. I'm going to challenge you to be people of corporate prayer, not only personal prayer. You know why I'm going to challenge you to do that? Because Jesus has told me that that is where this church needs to go. That is the next step in this church. Now, we're going to continue to teach the Word. I'm a teacher, no doubt about that. I think it's absolutely essential. We have some great teachers in this congregation. We're going to teach the Word. We're going to preach the Word. We're going to keep doing the Word. But are we going to do the Word, right? Are we going to do the Word? Are we going to people who pray together? You know, people who actually say, you know what? My life's messed up. Or how about this? Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful that you've filled my life. I want to just praise you. I want to come up front. I want to get on my knees, and I want to praise you. The Lord is not going to stop telling me to do this because that is the prophetic word that he's given me to this church. And you've heard it many times, but I'm telling it to you again. Become a church of prayer. My house shall be a house of prayer. Now, I know it's easier to come forward and pray at the altar rail when we have a full band of people. And and I'm not even telling you to come forward today because I'm looking at the big picture. I'm telling you, this is the word of God to this church. This church is called to be a church that fully runs after, think Habakkuk, runs after God, falls on our knees, falls on our faces before God, and calls out and cries out, God, change our community, reach Kalama, reach my own family. And until we're willing to trust one another enough to do that, we're never going to quite get there. We'll just be like all the other churches that just kind of do a little nice music, do a little preaching. People kind of pat each other on the back and they go home. And I'm not trying to be critical of other church. I'm really not. Because God is there. And far be it from me. 
I, I do not want to be critical of Jesus' Jesus' work in the lives of other people, but I know what he's called this church to be. And it's serious business. Lord God, I, I just ask that, uh, that this word that you've given me about the deadly art of non-living would not be that which we live out in this place. But that we would be people who fully trust one another and certainly trust you to live the life that you called us to as a body, as a congregation. Because it's only when we fully trust and love one another that others will actually see that we are your disciples. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.